Chapter 8 of Campfire Girls in the Country by Stella M. Francis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Back to Camp. Whether Hazel would have been able to dodge this issue and avoid the unintended trap that it contained if Aunt Hannah had not come to her rescue is uncertain. Of course, Aunt Hannah had no such purpose in view, but it was very natural for her to remark under the circumstances with dry, humorous reproach. Now, Ethel, are you sure that you didn't see double? Those were pretty exciting times yesterday, and it was quite possible for one to make a million mistakes. This afforded Hazel a pretext for diverting the conversation along another line. By the way, she said, is there a morning paper published here? No, replied her aunt, only an evening, or rather two of them, the Times and the Journal. There is a good deal of rivalry between them, and the Journal got out an extra last night with metropolitan headlines on the sensation of the day. I heard some boys calling the papers for sale but did not get one, said Hazel. How did you happen to know about it, Auntie? Oh, the journal called me up and asked for full information as to what we lost. You were here, Hazel, when they called. You heard me talking over the phone about it. Yes, said Hazel. I had forgotten, but remember now. I don't believe I knew who called you. I think I thought it was the police. Well, continued Aunt Hannah, they got out quite an addition. Some scoop for a small town, believe me. I had a messenger bring me a copy. Where is it? Hazel asked. On the table in the living room, I think, Aunt Hannah replied. Excuse me, girls, if I'm all impatience, but I can't eat any more breakfast until I've seen who had their pockets picked and so forth, Hazel declared. I suppose several campfire girls got their names in the paper. With this announcement, she left her omelet and popovers and skipped through the portiered arch into the next room. In a moment she was back with the paper in her hands. "'Listen, girls, here are the big headlines,' she announced. Then she read as follows. "'Sensational fight is pickpockets trick. Two score of crooks invade Fairbury, hypnotize the town, and carry off immense swag. Many pockets picked, much jewelry stolen, scores robbed, too.' Thieves escape in automobiles. Everybody let breakfast get cold, while Hazel read the two columns of thrilling description of the affair that had enraged the whole town. The evidence was declared to be conclusive that an organization of confidence men, perhaps some of the smoothest in the country, had plotted the whole performance with a view to producing the very results that followed. The number of individual losses of money and other valuables suffered by citizens and visitors had not yet been estimated, but apparently it was several hundred, judging from the complaints on every hand. The cash drawers in nine stores were opened and emptied, the loss here being nearly two thousands of dollars, as the receipts of the day had been large. The news story carried the names of over sixty persons who were known to have lost money and other valuables. Among these were Mrs. Hutchins, Ernestine Johansson, Violet Monday, and Ethel Zimmerman. The statement of their losses was accurate, except as to Aunt Hannah, 
who had said nothing to the reporter about any loss sustained by her aside from the fifteen dollars taken from her handbag. Consequently, no reference was made in the paper to this mysterious loss. After breakfast, all the members of Flamingo Fire returned to their camp and resumed outdoor life. Before leaving the house, however, they renewed their standing invitation to Mrs. Hutchins to join them any time she wished, and she promised to do so later in the day. Fern Hollow is the beginning of several miles of beautiful scenic depressions and elevations in the hilly country east of Fairbury. The site of this town is comparatively level. Most of the hilly expanse was either covered with timber or suited to grazing. Mrs. Hutchins' farm included about 200 acres of this kind of land, and also some 60 acres of fairly level and more tillable soil. A stream of water of more than the average depth and width of country creeks flows in fitful rapids and calms along the uneven bed the entire length of the hollow. This stream is the main outlet of Lake Ellen, which is fed by numerous springs and spring water rivulets on three sides. Years ago it was given the name Butter Creek by some facetious patriarch, perhaps, because of the extravagant amount of churning it had to do along the course of more than half a mile after it left the lake, or, to be absolutely fair, in honor of the herds of milch cows who browsed among the multitudes of buttercups that grew along the banks. The camp of Flamingo Fire was a short distance up the fern-decorated hillside from Butter Creek, about a quarter of a mile from the lake. This site was selected because of its beauty, which exceeded even that of the picturesque scene along the lake shore. Nine white canvas tents pitched close together on the side of the hill comprised the shelter of the camp. One of these tents was the kitchen and commissary headquarters, Another was occupied occasionally by Mr. and Mrs. Mackenzie, particularly while the girls were absent any considerable length of time from the camp. The other seven tents were the sleeping quarters of the thirteen members of the campfire and their guardian. Most of the ferns of Fern Hollow were in the lower part of the ravine or gully, many of them along the banks of Butter Creek. Here and there, near the stream, were small meadow-like areas, where buttercups grew in rich abundance, variegated with a plentiful sprinkling of violets, shooting stars, anemones, cowslips, and sweet williams. Much of the scattered tree growth near the stream was stunted and bushy. Farther up on either side of the creek, the bushes were larger and thicker, and the arboreal growths more substantial. Altogether, this little valley, with its picturesque surroundings, was a beautiful sight, and undoubtedly would have been exploited by revenue-seekers as a summer resort if the lake above had been large enough for extensive boating, bathing, and fishing. But even under present conditions there was fishing for the town in both the lake and in numerous pockets of the creek, while certain boys living in the vicinity maintained a boathouse, and two or three boats for their own use, and at a small fee by the hour, for the occasional public. Several years before, an enterprising individual with more enterprise, money, and imagination than sound business judgment attempted, in a small way, to establish a paying summer resort in this place. He leased a site and privileges for Mr. Hutchins and erected a sort of pioneer hotel of decidedly rustic aspect and a dozen portable cottages. He operated the place two seasons, enjoying a considerable patronage, 
but his expenditures exceeded his income to such an extent that he found it necessary to discontinue business in order to avoid bankruptcy. The portables had been removed, but the hotel, a small affair, made principally of logs, was still standing. To the girl campers, from the day of their arrival in Fern Hollow, this long-deserted hostelry was an object of no small interest. It was covered with vines and moss and surrounded with a dense growth of small trees and shrubbery. Over one end drooped a huge cottonwood tree, which had grown with a considerable lean toward the building. This tree, which was over one hundred feet tall and five or six feet in diameter at the base, undoubtedly was no more than a sapling at the time the hotel was constructed. One of the first objects of the campfire girl's exploration in the hollow was this renatured fiasco of civilization. Perhaps the fascination of the love that nature seemed to have for this object of poetic desolation had something to do with their selection of a camping site within a few hundred feet of it. At any rate, their first visit to the old log house resulted in unexpressed resolutions on the part of the visitors to come again. The interior was in a remarkable state of preservation. Even the floors were fairly sound, and the steps leading from the first story to the second, after a little repairing, could be climbed with safety. The first weekly meeting of the campfire was held one evening in this place. There was a huge fireplace in the main room on the first floor, and in this the girls built a roaring fire, which lighted up the room in a picturesque manner. This fireplace and the entire chimney constituted one of the most substantial elements of the building, being constructed of boulders of all sizes laid in Portland cement. Into these surroundings the members of Flamingo Campfire returned following the apparent closing of the incidents that signalized the most eventful Fourth of July any of them had ever known. There had been nothing inspiring in these experiences, and every one of the girls hoped heartily that they would have no more of this nature. When people go camping, as a rule, about the last thing they expect is a thrilling sensation of any sort. But the future of these girls seemed to be mapped out with promises of startling events, the one hopeful feature of which recognized their apparent ability to pull through with triumphant success. End of chapter 8